You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. And and if you're staying here with us, then please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, that's where we'll be continuing today. We've been studying through the book of Romans on Sunday mornings. We like to study through the Bible, through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So we're going to be reading this morning our text to begin with from Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this good news. Lord, that now a righteousness from God has been revealed for us. Lord, may we understand what that means. May we receive it by faith this morning as we study your word. May it truly hit us in our hearts, and may we see it in our minds and understand it, how truly good this good news is. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had an instance in your life where something happened, where, where something, everything looked hopeless? Maybe it was a situation where it seemed that there was no way out, that you were stuck, and it was hopeless, and you just kind of reserved yourself to the fact that, well, there's no more hope for this, and, and you just reserved your fact to the fact that you're just going to have to accept the grim reality of the situation because this is just how things are. But then something happens that changes everything, a turning point, a game changer. Maybe it was an email you received or a piece of information that you became aware of or something happened or someone did something and it changed everything. You know, I know in our lives a few years back, we were trying to, when we moved here to the U.S. six years ago, we were trying to bring our adopted son with us um, and every avenue we went down, the doors were closed and it seemed that the situation was absolutely hopeless. There was no legal way for him to stay here and so we tried everything we could think of and finally we met with a lawyer and we had this one hour meeting with the lawyer and at the end of the meeting, she said, there's nothing I can do for you. There, there's no way this is going to happen. Just give up. And we were just completely crushed, you know, to have our, our family separated and torn apart. But then literally as we were saying goodbye and walking out the door, she realized something. A piece of information that we had all before just thought was insignificant and inconsequential. And she realized, she said, actually, wait a second. This changes everything. And it was a game changer. And from that moment on, we went from hopelessness to hopefulness. It's like these game changers, these, these things that change everything. It's like the person who's on death row and they get their last meal. And then in the 11th hour, the call comes in from the governor's office that they've been pardoned. It's like the, the person, if you've ever heard of this man, his name was Peter Watling. And in 1992, in November, he was a tenant farmer in England, a poor tenant farmer, barely able to make ends meet. And, and he comes and he, he lost his hammer in a field. He borrowed his neighbor metal detector to find his hammer in the field. And as he's looking for his hammer in the field, he stumbles upon the greatest discovery of Roman treasure ever found in the world. It's called the Hawksney Hoard. And in that moment, he went from being a guy who had, didn't have two nickels to rub together to being a multimillionaire. Everything changed in that moment. It was something that changed everything. His destiny, his family's destiny from that day forward. For three chapters here in the book of Romans, Paul has been laying the foundation to help us understand why we 
we need the gospel? Why does it matter at all that Jesus lived? Why does it matter that Jesus died? Why should I care here in the 21st century that Jesus was a person who lived and died and rose again a long time ago? Why should I care? Why does that matter to me? You see, the gospel is a solution. It's a remedy to a problem. But unless you realize that you have a problem, you won't see any value in a solution or in a remedy. And you might think, well, other people might need that, but not me. I'm just fine as I am. So over the last three chapters, Paul has sought to show us that in fact, we are not just fine. He's taken us into the doctor's office, so to say, and he sat us down and he's given us the diagnosis. He said, Nick, I have the, the results from your tests. And there, there are some things that we need to talk about. If you look at this result here, you'll notice there's a big black spot on it. The tests came back positive. Look at this report. You see that black spot? It's, it means you're sick. It's going to kill you. And you might say, well, I don't feel sick. I feel just fine. How can this be true? And like many people, some people refuse treatment because they don't feel sick, because they feel just fine, even though in reality, there's a cancer inside or some other problem. And so for the last three chapters, building up until this point, Paul has taken us into the doctor's office and he's sat us down and pulled out the lab results and he's shown us, look, you're sick. Even if you don't feel like you're sick, you are desperately sick. He's taken us into the courtroom and he's laid out the charges against us for the offenses we've committed and he's shown us that we are guilty before God. See, the issue is something called righteousness. Righteousness essentially means a moral perfection. And the issue is that none of us have lived up to that. None of us are righteous. We've all done things which we shouldn't have done and therefore we are unrighteous. And because God is righteous and because God is just, therefore God must, he's obligated to by his nature, judge all unrighteousness. And what that means is that God is going to judge us. Our natural tendency when we hear that is to think that, yeah, that applies to other people. Makes sense. I get it. But I'm sure it applies to other people. But somehow I'm an exception to that rule. Somehow that doesn't apply to me. I mean, think about that tendency that we have. How many times have you been sitting and you've heard a sermon or you've heard, you read something in the Bible and your immediate thought is, wow, you know who needs to hear this? Is that girl from work. The one who's all off the rails and stuff. Or my crazy Uncle Rick. I wish he was here right now. I wish these other people were here because they need to hear this. And maybe that's true. Maybe Maybe your crazy Uncle Rick does need to hear this. That's why we put all our messages online. We encourage you, go online, share them, listen to our podcast, share it with other people. We want you to get these messages to people who need to hear them. But again, our natural tendency is to always very clearly see what other people need to change in their lives, but to think of ourselves as an exception, to exempt ourselves. And so for the past three chapters, Paul has been anticipating some of the ways that we might try to exempt ourselves from this and, and wiggle out of this. And so for the past three chapters, he's been building this watertight case to show you that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, good or bad, everybody, this is true for everybody. Nobody is exempt from this. He spent the last three chapters bringing us to the brink of hopelessness. And let us look over the edge to see the utter despair that awaits us. But here's the thing. He hasn't brought us all this way just to leave us here. He hasn't brought us all this way just to say, okay, and that's all I have to say to you. No, today, finally, we get to the point that Paul has been building up to and preparing us for, for this entire book up until this point. Today, Paul is going to introduce us finally to the good news that he really wants to share with us. Everything up until now has just been preparation for this so that we really understand it. You see, I wonder if Paul, as he's writing this part of the letter, I wonder if his hand is shaking and trembling a little bit, just full of excitement, full of adrenaline, because finally, this is the message that he's 
he's been wanting to share. This is what he's been wanting to get out. He wants to get it out to the whole world. This is the good news that changes everything. This is the game changer. This is the thing that changes all things forever, all of our destinies forever from here on out. See, but before we can get there, we're gonna take one final look at just how bad things really are. One final look, just in case there's anybody who's not yet convinced, just in case there's anybody who says, well, you know, I mean, I don't really fall into any of those categories that he's talked about over the past couple chapters. I don't think any of this really applies to me. I'm an exception. Now Paul's gonna say, no, no, this applies to everybody, and this applies to you. Stop thinking about that girl from work. Stop thinking about your crazy Uncle Rick. This applies to you. Every single human being, without exception, from verses 9 through 20, He's going to talk about the universal problem. And then from verses 21 to verse 31, he's going to talk about the cure that changes everything. So let's begin by looking at the universal problem. He starts out in verse 9, and he says this. He says, what shall then we conclude? What shall we conclude? In other words, everything he's been talking about now, now he's going to bring us to the conclusion of all of it. What shall we conclude? Everything he's been talking about for three chapters has been leading to this conclusion. And what's the conclusion? Look at the end of verse 9. He says, here's the conclusion. All people are under sin. All people are under sin. And verse 10, no one is righteous. So they got these two things, unrighteousness and being under sin. They essentially mean the same thing, but in a little bit different way, right? So unrighteousness speaks of our legal standing before God. That is our legal status. We are not right with God. We are not in right standing with God. To be under sin speaks of our position in regard to sin, right? In other words, we are underneath it. It's on top of us. It's pinning us down and crushing us. I heard this statistic recently. I thought this was interesting. It said that you are 90% more likely to be killed by a vending machine falling on you than you are to be killed by a spider. Now, I apparently, this is something that you're supposed to tell people who are afraid of spiders. You're supposed to say, oh, well, you shouldn't be afraid of a spider. You know you have a 90% higher chance of being killed by a vending machine uh, than you do of being killed by a spider, so you shouldn't be afraid of spiders. But I, it's just a weird statistic. It makes me wonder, who are all these people who are getting killed by vending machines? It's like, hey, man, I understand. It took your money, and it didn't give you a butterfinger. But, bro, it's just not worth it, man. Just, like, let it go, okay? Because you are 90% more likely to be killed by a vending machine than you are by a spider. The people need to know that, so they just let the vending machine go. You'll get another dollar somewhere, right? Now, I was thinking about that, and that's kind of a picture of what it means to be under sin. I just picture this person underneath a vending machine in my mind. They went there, they thought they were going to get something good that they were going to enjoy, but then they didn't get what they thought they were going to get. They start wrestling with it, and then all of a sudden, next thing they know, the vending machine's on top of them, and they can't get out, and it's crushing them, and they're powerless to save themselves from under it. That's where we're all at. We're being crushed, unrighteous, and under sin. And here's why it's important, because, you know, all of us know that, there, hey, there, there are some people who are more sinful than other people. Like, you probably know, or you could probably think of somebody who is a bigger sinner than you. And you're like, hey, I'm not that bad. Look at that guy. And, and here's the thing, though, with this legal status. Well, no matter how great of a sinner or how little of a sinner you are, if your legal status is unrighteous, 
then you are unrighteous. In other words, it's not measured by degrees. It's just this or that. You're either righteous or unrighteous. And here's the other thing. There might, with the, the vending machine thing and with it being on top of you, just imagine two people both stuck under a vending machine. One's very moral, the other's very immoral. But they're both stuck under a vending machine and they can't get themselves out of it. They're both trapped and it's crushing them both. And so whether it's a little sin or a lot of sin, we're all in the same boat. That's what he's saying. We're all trapped under the same thing. We all have the same legal status before God. And then from verses 10 through 18, now, here's what Paul does. He, he strings together seven Old Testament verses, seven Old Testament quotations in order to show us that what he's talking about here is not something he just came up with. It's not something he made up. This is not his idea. This is what the Bible has always taught, always. The Old Testament, this is what it has always said. And in these verses, here's what he gives us. He gives us seven ways that sin affects us. That's how we're going to look at this. Look at seven ways that sin affects us. Number one, sin affects our standing before God. We see that in verse 10. It affects our standing before God, that there is no one who is righteous. That's our legal standing. Our standing before God is that we are guilty. Secondly, sin affects our minds. He says in verse 11, there is none who understands. No one understands. See, one of the effects that sin has on us is that it corrupts us to our very core. It corrupts our very nature. In other words, we are not the people we were made to be. We're broken. We're fallen. We're flawed. And part of our nature that God created us with as human beings is that he gave us rational capacity. He gave us the ability to use reason and reasonable thought. What he's saying here is even that has been corrupted by sin. See, it's not that we can't understand anything. Like we can understand all kinds of stuff, math and science and all kinds of things. But when it comes to God's truth, spiritual truth, we don't understand. The Bible puts it this way, that people hear, but they don't comprehend, that they see, but they don't perceive. Maybe you've experienced that yourself, the gospel, all this stuff about Jesus, you get it, and then it's exciting, and it moves you, and you want to share it with other people, you want to tell other people about it, but they don't get it, and you start to wonder, how can you not get this? It's just so clear, it's so obvious, it's so wonderful. What is there not to get? How can you hear these things I'm saying, and it means nothing to you, it doesn't move you, and the Bible tells us exactly why that is. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, it says, The reason we don't understand God's truth is because we are darkened in our understanding. And we're darkened in our understanding because of the ignorance that is in us. Why? It says, due to the hardening of our hearts. In other words, it's not ignorance that leads to hard hearts. It's hardness of heart that leads to ignorance. One of the ways the Bible describes this is the metaphor of a callous. It talks about having a calloused heart and a calloused mind. If you've ever learned to play the guitar or you've ever done something with your hands that caused you to build up calluses, then you know what it's like. You know, I remember when I learned to play the guitar, the first time you play, it hurts hurts your fingers. Your fingers are raw. They're sore. They hurt. And they even hurt afterwards for several days. Sometimes your fingers even bleed. You're sensitive, in other words. But the more you do it, the more you, you build up a callus, the less sensitive you are. And after a while, what used to bother you, what used to irritate you, no longer bothers you anymore to the point where you actually get to the point where you no longer feel anything at all when you do it. Now, it's like when I remember when I was a kid, I did something that I knew was wrong and, and I just felt terrible about it inside and I felt guilty and ashamed and that feeling lasted for days. But then the next time I did it, it, it 
didn't take me as long to get over it. It became easier. And then I did it again and again and again, and it became easy to the point where I didn't feel anything anymore. It didn't bother me anymore. See, I had become calloused. And the Bible says that 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 not only happens in our hearts, it actually happens in our minds, that our minds can become calloused in the same way, that if you continually harden your heart against God, and when God speaks to you, you ignore it. What you're doing is you're building up a callous. And over time, your understanding becomes darkened until the point where you, you become blind to basic spiritual truths that should be obvious. And your way of thinking doesn't even compute things the way that it should anymore. You become calloused in your mind and your mind becomes darkened. The next way that sin affects us here in the text we read, sin affects our motives. Look at the second half of verse 11. It says, there is no one who seeks God. Now, now some of you at this point might say, wait a second. I mean, isn't this going a bit too far? I mean, no one seeks God. Are you serious? That has to be some kind of hyperbole because see, what about the millions of people who are walking into churches all across the country? this morning. What what about people of other religions? Isn't that what other religions are all about? I mean, they might be seeking God in different ways, but aren't they they just different forms of looking for God and seeking God? And the answer is actually no. Surprisingly, maybe, but it's actually no. Now, let me walk you through this and explain this to you, because I think it's very clear, and it's actually a very powerful thing for us to consider. See, the answer is no. See, one of the results, one of the characteristics of our fallen human nature is that we don't seek God, but we run from God. We hide from God. We see it with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that as soon as they sinned, what did they do? They hid from God, and God comes looking for them, and they're hiding from him. He says, why are you hiding from me? And they said, because we were ashamed. Well, then how do you make sense of all the different world religions out there? I mean, aren't these just different forms of people looking for God and seeking God? And and that's what's really interesting, actually, because the way that modern anthropology thinks about a religion, right? The way that modern anthropology explains human religion is it says it starts with this assumption that human a religion evolved along with human beings and that uh, we began by worshiping nature, that we like lived in caves and we worshiped nature. And then we evolved and developed to this point where we believed in like abstract gods and like invisible gods that we can't see, but we worship, we had many of them. So like believing in multiple gods. And then the final stage of that was the final development or evolution of religion was that then we decided that we believe in one God, one supreme God, monotheism. And so monotheism, they would say is, you know, the full development or full evolution of religion. And so belief in, in Yahweh, or the God of the Bible, they would say, is just one of many different developments that took place as people were trying to figure things out. And other religions are just different attempts to figure things out uh, in the same way. But here's what's interesting. Whereas anthropology kind of gives us that story, the Bible gives us a completely different story. What the Bible says, that's not how it happened at all. Instead, here's the picture the Bible gives us, is that in the beginning, human beings, from day one, we knew God, we walked with God, and we worshiped God. From day one, that's how we started out, with one God who we knew and who we worshiped. We didn't have to find him or discover him. He wasn't hiding. From the beginning, we knew God and worshiped God, and we knew the true and living God. But we turned away from him. It wasn't that, that we had to find him. It was that we, we, ha- we knew him and we turned away from him. 
and we, we, worshiped, we decided to worship other things instead of him. And that's what the Bible would say is the true story of world religions. Rather than an evolution of religion where, where uh, the Bible shows us that just the opposite, it's the devolution of religion. In other words, it's us knowing God and then turning away from him and then beginning to worship other things, other things of our own creation, even to the point where we actually start worshiping creation itself, the created things or material things. The book of Exodus tells us a story which, which gives us some insight into our human nature. It tells us a story of the golden calf. Maybe you remember the story. God had brought the people out of Egypt and they were at the base of Mount Sinai. And what happened is that the people uh, wanted God to, to take them on and God had stopped at Sinai for several months and it just felt like... What is happening? Why aren't things moving forward? Why are we just stalled out right here? In other words, they felt that God wasn't giving them what they wanted, which was to go to the promised land, when they wanted it. I mean, he might still do it, but we want it faster. We want it now. In other words, they became impatient. And here's what they said. Well, if the Lord God isn't going to do it for us, well, then we don't need him. We'll make our own God, our own God who we can manipulate and control, and we can make our God do what we want when we want it. And that, the Bible says, is the true history of religion. It isn't that people uh, don't know who God is. It's that they do know who God is and they don't like him. Because here's why. Because they can't control him. For many of us, isn't that our biggest frustration with God? That there's no way for us to control him. We like to be in control and we can't control him. He's a free range God. He just does whatever he wants. And for us, sometimes that's really hard for us to accept because we like to be in control, don't we? And we want a God who we can manipulate. We can kind of put the screws to him. We can kind of dictate to him how things should be. We can kind of control how things are gonna go and we can tell him what he's gonna do and when he's gonna do it so we get what we want when we want it. And this, if you really examine it, is the one thing that actually separates biblical religion or, or Christianity from every other religion in the world. You know, people ask, well, you know, Christianity is just like all the other religions, right? I mean, no, there's actually one fundamental difference between Christianity and, and would say biblical religion and all other religions in the world. And, and here's what it is. Every other religion in the world puts you in the driver's seat. It puts you in the driver's seat. But Christianity says actually just the opposite. In order for you to follow this God, in order for, for you to, to have this God, you actually have to get out of the driver's seat and put him in the driver's seat. You have to let him be in control and not you. Every other religion puts you in the driver's seat. It says, hey, here's these five pillars. Here's these seven ordinances. And if you do these, if you say these prayers and, and keep these rules, and if you do it well enough and often enough, then you can get God to give you what you want when you want it. And when you, go to, uh, when you die, you will go to heaven. In other words, every religion says, do these things and God will, will do this for you. You, you can earn it. You can, you can make it happen. But Christianity says something completely different. It says, here's what he has done for you. He did it. You accept it. With the golden calf, the people of Israel showed that it wasn't actually God himself that they wanted. What they really were after was the things that they believed that God could give them. Right? In other words, they didn't want God himself for who he was. They wanted God for what, he, what they thought he could do for them. And what this means, that's what it means when it says here in verse 11, there's no one who seeks God. There might be people who seek blessings from God. There might be people who even seek forgiveness from God. But they're not seeking God for himself. They're only seeking God for what he can do for them. In other words, sin affects our motives. It makes us selfish. And it's worth asking yourself this question. Ask yourself this question honestly and sincerely. Do you primarily view God as useful to you 
Or do you view him as beautiful to you? Do you primarily see God? When you think of God, do you think of him as useful or do you think of him as beautiful? Do you worship him because you consider him useful or do you worship him because you consider him beautiful? That makes all the difference. See, here's the thing. If you're only seeking God because you view him as useful to you, then in your mind, the only reason you need God is to help you get your agenda accomplished. But what if God doesn't do that? What if he doesn't give you what you want when you want it? What if he doesn't do your agenda? What if you want this thing, you have this dream and it doesn't happen? Then what? If God is only useful to you to get what you want, well, then you won't need him anymore. And like so many people, you'll just cast him aside. Like the people with the golden calf, cast him aside and you'll, you'll get something else. You'll make something else up for yourself or find something else that you feel like you can control. You see, that's why it's possible to be religious and not really seek God at all. Because in your religion, it's actually all just about you. But maybe you say, well, okay, wait a second. Now, what about those of us who are here today because we are following Jesus and we are giving God lordship over our lives? Ah, well, that's where it gets really interesting. Here's what the Bible tells us. It says that because of sin, no one seeks God, truly, honestly. But here's the thing. God is seeking us. That is the good news of the gospel. Not that we seek God and we find him, but that he seeks us and he finds us and he, he takes us in, from rebels and, and makes us children, sons and daughters and friends. And what that means is this, that anyone who is truly seeking God has been sought by God. Anyone who's truly seeking God has been sought by God. Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless my father who sent me draws him. In other words, it isn't that God is hiding but, and that we are seeking. Just the opposite, in our fallen nature, we are hiding. We, our natural tendency is to hide, but the good news of the gospel is that God is seeking you. And if you say, well, hey, that's cool. I mean, I'd really like to be found. Well, great, you can be. You just turn and you face the God who has been seeking you and pursuing you all the days of your life and you stop running from him and you embrace him. You see, no one understand, or no one truly seeks God, not truly, not really, but the good news of the gospel is that God is seeking us. In other words, it's not that we need to find God, it's that God finds us and, and takes us from being rebels and enemies and makes us into sons and daughters and friends. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's continue. Number four, sin affects our will. Verse 12, it says that all have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In other words, there is a willfulness in our wandering. In our wandering, there is a willfulness. There is a thought outness. Our will is corrupted. We are determined to choose our own path and go our own way. Now, again, we have a phrase here that, that some people might say, well, wait a second, I don't know about this, right? It says, no one does good. Really? Like, how can you say that? I mean, honestly, aren't there a lot of good people out there who do a lot of good things, charitable things, make the world a better place, even though they're not Christians? And the answer to that is, yes, there are, of course there are. Then, then what do you mean here that it says that there's no one who does good? Again, remember, this is speaking of our human nature and it's speaking of goodness in the sense of goodness that justifies us before God. But here's the other part of this. It says this, it isn't that people never do good things, but it's that even when we do good things, our motives are tainted. 
Our motives are tainted. We do good things to justify ourselves or to glorify ourselves. So at the end of the day, those things aren't really truly good. They're not truly pure because of sin. Even our motives are not truly honest and pure. Even our good deeds are tainted. Number five, sin affects our actions. He, He says in verse 13, he talks about our words. In other words, the words that we say and the things that we do are corrupted by sin. Sin, number six, affects our relationships. Verses 15 through 17, it talks about how human relationships are broken up because of sin. And notice in this section, starting in verse 13, it says their throat is an open grave, their tongues. It talks about different parts of the body. Notice it says the throat, the tongue. Then it says the venom of asps is under their their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet. So he's talking about different parts of the body. And then he talks finally about the eyes. He talks about the mind, the feet, the lips, the mouth. In other words, he's saying all these different parts of our bodies. In other words, here's the point. From head to toe, inside and outside, there is no part of you that has not been affected by sin. Sin separates us from other people. It ruins our relationships. It destroys human relationships. And finally, number seven, sin affects our relationship with God. It says there's no fear of God before their eyes. Most devastating of all, sin ruins our relationship with God. We do not fear God as we should. We do not revere him or honor him as we ought to. And as a result of our attitudes and our actions, we are cut off from God. And the result of all of this, verse 19, this is the per- he says the, the purpose of all this, the purpose of the law, which shows us God's perfect standard, he says this, is so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. In other words, the point of all this is to leave us to the point where we can no longer say, yeah, but, yeah, but, no, there's no more yeah, buts left. This is it. There's no more, every mouth is stopped. There's nothing we can say. There's nothing we can do. We realize we are completely without excuse and we are accountable to God. And he says in verse 20, no one can be justified before God by keeping rules, by earning, you can't earn forgiveness. The purpose of the law is to show us that we have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And the situation is absolutely hopeless. And you say, well, what can I do about it? And the answer is you can do, there's nothing you can do about it. Absolutely nothing you can do to fix yourself. There's absolutely nothing you can do to fix this problem for yourself. But take a look at the next verse and you'll see two of the most beautiful words that have ever been written. Verse 21 begins with these words. But now, but now, if you like to write in your Bible and you circle that, you underline it, you highlight it, there's no amount of highlighter or ink that will be enough. Those are the two most amazing, most wonderful, most glorious transitional words that could possibly be imagined. All of this, it's hopeless. But now, but now, you're sick, you're hopeless, you're guilty, you're condemned. But now, something else. So I I do counseling sometimes, right, as a pastor, but I know other people who are professional counselors, full-time counselors, and what they've told me is that, hey, when you counsel a couple, here's what you need to do. And I I guess I'm giving away a trade secret, so don't use this against any counselors, okay? But here's the one thing that they'll say. The one thing you need to listen for is the word but. Because they'll they'll talk and, and you just listen, but when they say the word but, that's when you pay attention. Because when they say the word but, that's when you start listening because it means that whatever came before that uh, is, is going to be totally negated by whatever comes after that, right? Whatever they said until that point, after they say the word but, whatever comes after that is going to be totally negating everything that came before it. And so here we have this word but. Everything that came before 
is going to be different now because of what comes next. And that is this, the cure that changes everything. Verse 21, but now the righteousness from God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This changes everything. Our biggest problem, the the reason we deserve the, the wrath of God and the judgment of God is because we lack righteousness. In other words, we are unrighteous. And there is no way for us to fix that problem and make ourselves righteous. In other words, it would take an act of God to fix that problem. And that's exactly what we have here. The message of the gospel is that God gives us his righteousness, his perfect record as a gift, which we receive by faith. We didn't earn it. We can't deserve it. We can't work for it. We just receive it and we say, thank you. It's a gift. And you might wonder, why would God do that? Why would anyone do that? And here's the answer. Because he loves you. That's why. He loves you. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what we've been talking about for the last three chapters. That's why we need the gospel. Verse 24, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In order to understand this passage, there's a lot of big words in there, a lot of theological words. We gotta, we gotta just take a second and define what some of these terms mean. So let's do that. Four words that need definitions. Number one, sin. Sin is an archery term, even in English, and it very well translates the the Greek word for sin. And here's what it means. It means to miss the mark. If you've ever done archery, a perfect score would mean that you hit the bullseye every single time. If you miss the bullseye, you've missed the mark. And the Greek word for sin is the word amartia. Ah, whenever anything begins with ah in Greek, it means that it's totally negating whatever comes next. And so So martia means unity. So it means without unity. In other words, when you miss the mark, you are without unity. You're not what you should be. As a result, you lack unity within yourself. And even worse, you lack unity with God, which is the very standard of perfection. Second word, propitiation. Propitiation isn't a word that we use in our everyday language, is it? Like you never say, oh, I had to work late at work this week because my boss wanted me to get some propitiation done, right? Or you might say, hey, I'm going to the store. You want me to pick you up some propitiation, right? Like this isn't a word that we use. So what does it even mean? It's a religious word. It's a religious word, which is not just unique to Christianity. It's, it's used in other religions. And the idea is that it means to appease a God, appease a deity, usually by means of a sacrifice. In other words, it carries with it the idea that God is upset even angry. Now we tend, especially in our culture, to really not like that idea, to not like the idea of an angry God. You see that God, but here's the thing. God sees everything that's happening in the world. And the point of this is that he's not emotionally detached. He's not just cold and and calculated, but he is emotionally invested. Let me ask you this. Have you ever seen something, a terrible act of injustice, and it made you angry? I was thinking of a time as I was thinking about this when I saw two kids, you know, bullying another kid. And how does that make me feel? It doesn't just make me feel sad. It makes me feel upset. It makes me feel angry. Well, why would they do that? Why would they be so cruel? I've experienced it many times. You see a strong person hurting a weak person, a bully or a powerful person, mistreating a vulnerable person. And you see these things and they don't just break your heart, but they actually make you upset. This is not right. It's not okay. And it makes you angry. Now try to imagine things from God's perspective, that he sees everything, right? He hears everything. He knows every thought, right? He sees all the injustice in the world. He sees every bully. He sees every abuser in the world. He hears all the mean things that people say about each other behind their backs, people hurting each other, people whom he loves. They're hurting the people he loves and created. And it makes him understandably not just sad, 
but sometimes angry. It's not a mean anger. It's not a bad anger. It's a right and appropriate response of indignation. And here's what this is saying, that God, in Christ, came to us, he became one of us, and he cast his burning hot anger upon himself. He did it on the cross. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. The suffering of the cross was much more than just the physical pain of having his hands and feet pierced through with spikes for a couple hours. It was more than just the agony of suffocating on the cross. It was the agony of suffering the wrath of God because of our sins. And next word is justification. Justification is a legal term, and it means to be made right. Picture the scene. A 17-year-old boy in a, in a rural community gets caught for reckless driving, gets pulled over and arrested for reckless driving and endangering people's lives, and he's brought into court, and he's relieved when he looks up on the dock and he sees that his father is the judge. It's a small community. You know everybody plays multiple roles and wears multiple hats, and so his father is the judge presiding over his case, and he feels relieved, but after reviewing the case, the judge gives his decision. He says, young man, your reckless driving has endangered the lives of people in our community and consequently justice must be served. And so the, the, here's the consequence. You are going to need to either pay $10,000 in fines or you are going to have to go to jail for a year. And the young man says, but dad, dad, how can you do that to me? You know, I don't have any money at all. How can, I'll never be able to pay that fine. But his dad says, young man, in this court, you will refer to me as your honor. And he slams down his gavel and the boy just stands there speechless. And the bailiff approaches, ready to take him off to jail. When the judge stands up, walks down the stairs, comes around the bench, stands next to his son and pulls out his checkbook and writes a check for the full amount. You see, that's what we're talking about. We talk about justification. Look at verse 25. It says that as God did this, he did this so that he could be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. See, this is the issue. If God is just and fair, if that's his nature, then that means that every sin has to be punished. And so if God forgives our sins and, and treats them if they never happened, well then how is that fair? It's not. He has to judge sin. In order for God to be true to his character and not compromise his character, he must judge sin. So the question is, how can God forgive us yet without compromising his character? And here's the answer, the message of the gospel. In Jesus, God is the just one and the justifier of those who receive it by faith. Jesus took the judgment that you deserved, that I deserved, so that God could show us mercy and grace and forgive us without compromising his justice, his holiness, his character. In verse 25, another interesting thing, it says that in, in former times, God passed over people's sins in his divine forbearance. In other words, if you think back to the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, people like Abraham, Moses, King David, people who lived during that period before Jesus lived and died and resurrected, how could they be saved? And here's what it says, that God essentially deferred the payments for their sins. He deferred the payments. The sacrificial sin was a way of covering it up and deferring payment for a later time until Jesus could come and he paid the price once and for all, for all sin, past, present, and future for those who receive his gift of grace. The last word is the word redemption. It's a slavery term, actually. In the Roman Empire, there were millions of slaves, and they would be bought and sold like property in the marketplace. In order to redeem a slave, what you could do is you could go and you could purchase someone you pay the price for them in the market. And then once you owned that person, you could say, okay, I grant you your freedom. You're free. But who would do something like that? Who would spend a fortune just to set someone free? 
And this is a picture of what we have that has been done for us in Christ. That we are under sin, that we are slaves to sin, but God has purchased us by the shed blood of Jesus in order to set you free. That's something you could never do for yourself. That's why it says in verse 27, where then is boasting? It is, it is excluded. See, when it comes to Jesus, what he's done for us, we can't take credit for it. We can't brag about it. What would you boast about? I mean, I think about that vending machine thing. I just can't get it out of my mind. Think about it. If you got trapped under a vending machine and somebody came along and saved you, you wouldn't have a lot to brag about, right? The only thing that you could say, well, yeah, I got myself stuck under a vending machine, right? That's the only thing that you contributed to the whole situation. And that's the same thing here. This salvation that Jesus gives us, verse 28, it reminds us it's not something we earn. It's something that Jesus did for us and he gives it to us freely, undeservedly, a gift that we receive by faith. And he says in verse 29 and 30, for this reason, no matter who you are, everyone is saved in the same way. In other words, it's not that Jews are saved in, a, in one way and Christians are saved in a different way. Do you know that some people actually believe that? It has a name. It's called dual covenant theology. And it's totally whack. Like, it's totally wrong, okay? Look at this verse. There's only one way to be saved. It's through Jesus because of what he did on the cross. And we receive that salvation by faith. Verse 31, he says, do we get rid of the law because we have faith now? He says, no way. We uphold the law. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about what that means as we look at Abraham and we see what the purpose of the law was and always is. But today I want to leave you with this. To be justified means to be right with God. And here's what's, more, what's so amazing about it. It means that once you've been justified, God looks at you and he doesn't just see you as if you've never sinned. He actually does something more than that. This is what's amazing. When God justifies you, he doesn't just forgive your sins. He goes one step further, one giant step further. He doesn't just forgive your debt. He actually gives you a credit on your account. He gives you his righteousness in your account as a credit. And because of that, if you've been justified in Christ, and when God looks at you, he no longer just doesn't see any reason to be upset with you. In fact, he sees so many things that he delights in, that he rejoices over. If you've been justified, then when God looks at you, not only is he not upset, he's actually pleased. It goes from being a negative, not just a neutral, to a positive. He's actually pleased. He looks on you and says, my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased, in you he is satisfied if you have been justified in Christ. How do you get that? How do you get that justification? You get it by faith, by trusting in, by clinging to Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. It means no longer looking to yourself, no longer looking at yourself, no longer trusting in yourself, but looking to him and trusting in what he did for you. And I want to encourage you to do that today, to look to him, to trust in him, and receive that gift of his grace today. It's the good news that changes everything. Lord, we thank you for this gift of your grace. Lord, thank you for this promise that you give us, Lord, that because of what you've done for us, we can have a brand new start. Everything can change. Lord, I pray for everybody here today. If there's anybody who says, you know what, I want that, and I don't know if I've ever had it. I don't know if I, I've really gotten to that point of receiving what Jesus did for me. Lord, may today be the day that they do that before they leave. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have done it many times and said, yes, Jesus, I do trust in you. I am seeking you because you first sought me. Lord, thank you for that fact that you sought us. But Lord, we also pray that today would be a day of renewal in which we put our faith in the gospel once again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.